This is Decoding Healthcare. I'm Joanna Weiss. And I'm Kevin Ban. So, Kevin, if I say snow globe to you in the context of healthcare, what do you think of? <laughs> snow globe. Oh, oh, oh. Um, you're going to the show, <laughs> 1980s. Not St. Elmo's. That's what's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saint, uh, Saint Elsewhere. Yes! You got it. Got it. So, yeah, I've explained the iconic ending of that series to some of my millennial colleagues. I'm not going to do any spoiling here. Suffice it to say that it ends with a beautiful image of a hospital in the snow. And it was really one of the first shows that ever talked about the relationship between the administrators and the physicians. It was kind of the Stonehenge of medical TV shows. There you go. Yes. And my memory is a little fuzzy, but I do think one of those running themes was the relationship between the doctors, as you said, and the suits, which is why I got a little excited when we started talking to our next guest, who is a finance and operations executive at an ACO. And here's what he had to say about suits. Although I am wearing a suit today, I like to think I am not that suit anymore. I think the relationship we have with the physicians has changed. That was Kevin Hoppe. He's the chief operating officer of the Leahy Clinical Performance ACO. You know, Paul Levy was talking to us about all the difficulties around negotiation. Well, Kevin is someone who's actually right smack dab in the middle of building an ACO. And you know the truth is, he's pretty optimistic about it. That's right. In some of our other episodes, we've asked doctors how they talk to administrators about proving the value of some of these unconventional new methods of caring for patients that value-based care has brought about. So things like treating loneliness as a health issue or sending community paramedics into people's homes. So Kevin Hoppe is the guy on the other side of that table. And as his career has brought him into the world of ACOs, he's developed a whole new level of partnership with the doctors in his system. Let's listen. Let's talk first about support. What does that mean? What do doctors want and what do they get? I think an awful lot of what we're asking nowadays has been an additional burden for primary care physicians specifically. We certainly do work with specialists, but the primary care physicians are the ones historically who were the gatekeepers, now have much more involved in managing that gate. And they're the ones also who tend to be paid less than some of the specialists, right? They've got it coming from all corners. Absolutely. And that's certainly true. And I think, again, that's where we try to move with incentives as well. But when we're working with a primary care physician, the support team that we've tried to create is intended to make their life easier. Rather than have the physician doing all the work, soup to nuts, there are a number of things that other resources can do. And and people talk about top of license, working to the top of their Mm -hmm. license. You know, some physician documentation stuff is certainly not what a physician went to medical school for. That's, you know, not really the top of their license. So charting everything from the visit to the quality measures? Exactly. So trying to do some of that support using a medical assistant in the office, having them room the patient, trying to get through some of the basic questions that you would be asked as a patient rather than having the physician's time to do that. And a lot of the things that we're now at risk for are somewhat check the box that they're process-based protocols. Give me an example. I think the simplest example we work a lot with is just basic testing for diabetics, for example, that they have an HbA1c screen. We are incentivized to have that happen multiple times a year. And it's not really the physician that needs to do anything. 
other than read the result of that and then use the result of that to, to determine a care plan, the rest of that could be done with someone at a, a much different level. In general, has that required you to staff up, or has it just meant deploying people differently who are already in the office? It's a little bit of a mix. So the, the basic blocking and tackling is differential deployment. We're asking MAs to do much more than they would have in the past. And I, frankly, have not spent a long time with our MAs to say as a whole, you know, what's your job engagement? I think our presumption is, is that it's much higher because they have more responsibility and there's more of a job there for them. Other individuals, however, along the continuum, care managers, for example, that's a staff up. We have many more care managers than we've ever had in our organization before, either on an inpatient side or on an ambulatory side. What's the job requirement to be a, a care manager? How much medical skill do you have to have versus being someone who's good at organization, good with people? So it's a mix of both. We've got RNs who are care managers. We have social workers who are care managers. We also have pharmacists who work as care managers. And then the final component that we use in our model are health coaches. Other organizations call them navigators. And they are not clinically trained. Where they work is helping patients navigate through the system. So their understanding, rather than clinical, is more benefit-related type of understanding. So they're your air traffic control a little bit. You have to call this guy. I'll help you get in touch with this person at the insurance company. And exactly. I call it somewhat inappropriately, but <laughs> as I talk with my wife, as I deal with my mother's health care issues, I think the care managers in general are daughter-in-laws. <laughs> that I'm incapable of handling my mother's health care issues, but my wife is very skilled at it. And she can tell my mother exactly how it is. You know, for me, it's more emotionally based how I have to deal with my mother. My wife can be a little bit separated from that. And so the resources we're trying to offer are exactly those. The, the emotion is somewhat out of it. They're very knowledgeable about what care is needed for a patient. They're very knowledgeable about what behaviors that patient, the responsibilities that patient needs to take. I like that family metaphor a lot. Anyone who's been a patient or has had a patient in the family knows that it takes a, a, village, a, a right? team effort. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can't possibly, though, be able to deploy that size of a team for every patient on every panel. And that's true. By and large, what we have done is stratify our patients by what we determine is their risk status. And the patients where we're spending the most time typically have multiple issues going on. We also focus mostly on our risk contracts overall because the patients are easily identifiable to us. Uh, when you in an HMO product pick a PCP, the insurance company tells us you've picked you know, one of our PCPs. We get more data on that patient because they've picked our PCP. And then we can work with them in a little different way. We have tried to do this across product plans or across insurance plans. We don't really have the resources to get to that. But probably more importantly, we don't get the information on patients to be able to do it well. Do you feel like that's the future, that someday there'll be even more robust plans around more patients? Absolutely. And as we move, I think nationally there's a push for us to move away from fee-for-service-based type of reimbursement to value-based reimbursement, I think we're getting our feet wet 
right now, and that is how it's going to continue to transition. So let's talk about that reimbursement. We've talked about doctors having some of that work wicked away from them, which I'm sure is a great incentive, but then that other big incentive is always salary. So how are you finding the doctors are handling this shift in reimbursement and this shift in incentives? Our focus initially has been in primary care, again, trying to reward them for the gatekeeper work that we're asking of them, essentially recognizing we're asking more of them. So they get a little more of the share of the savings? They do get a little more of a share of the savings. And within our network, we have both employed and private affiliated physicians. So historically, the employed physicians have had productivity, fee-for-service based incentives for the system as a whole. So if there is more inpatient utilization, the system does better and those physicians benefit from that. Ooh, but you don't want that anymore in a value-based contract. Exactly. So in the value-based contract, we're trying to recognize if there is a decrease in utilization, yet a surplus in that contract, then they should be getting a share of that. Many of our affiliated physicians have been in these type of contracts for some time, and they've seen the win that they can get out of that. And it's not just financial, I should say. I mean, they, they do respond to that, but they recognize their work to try to benefit the patient is rewarded, and, and they should see some reward for that. And they have engaged differently. It was slow to start because they were still brainwashed isn't the right word, but I mean, they still understood. Well, you know, you, you, you get way. that cheese <laughs> every time you push the button. Exactly. Um, so yeah, how have they adjusted? How What was that process like? So the beginning of the process really was, well, how do you measure it? And how do you determine that Dr. A did as well as Dr. B? And if you're not going to give them an even share, what behaviors are you rewarding? So, are they pushing for yellow cheese or white cheese? You and, know. Mm-hmm. And what did you determine? What's what's the best behavior to reward? So I don't know that we found the best behavior. I think what we've spent most of our time in is trying to make sure that it's behavior that is first and foremost actionable by the physician, where we ask them to do something, they do it, and then a surplus or a reward comes from that. You mentioned before aligned incentives, and you also mentioned inpatient. I mean, there's one of those cases that the naysayers say classic misaligned incentives. In the risk contract, you don't want hospital visits. The hospital still wants visits. How do you square that? So that's our most difficult question. Where our bigger focus has been, quite frankly, is in retaining the patients within our system. And, you know, that's beneficial for our patients, not only in it reduces overall cost, it also is a coordination of care for them. I referenced electronic medical records before. Mm -hmm. The data, the information that we're getting from the patients in our systems is tremendously valuable for our physicians to be able to make decisions and work off of. I'm curious, we've talked about bringing doctors on board. How has it been bringing hospital executives on board? That is the biggest challenge. Is that Uh, the hardest group to work with? I would say absolutely. So, you know, we have been able to reward our physicians. We've been able to tell them that value, which quite frankly, the biggest expense in the the equation tends to be hospitals, inpatient admissions. And we have told our physicians, well, value can be derived by lowering that expense. And lowering that expense means no more volume in your hospital to take it to the extreme. 
So it has been very concerning for our hospital executives trying to figure out what to do. And get the defibrillator out. <laughs> for some of those guys. Exactly. And I think where we've tried to position it, we talked about uh, managing leakage for one, uh, so that we want to make sure our, as much of our population can be cared for at our facilities. But that may not be the end-all, be-all. And I think some of the other things that we need to figure out is, are there different ways that we can use our services to treat the patients? You mean it, in using the hospital not just for inpatient stays but for other exactly. services? Exactly, and trying to disrupt the business that we've had. Can you imagine what a disrupted hospital system might someday look like? Are we talking about competing with the MRI service down the street and doing more MRIs in the hospital? Is, that, is it that kind of service? I think these are things we struggle with every day is, you know, what is that business down the road? Might it be these big four-wall hospitals or might it be much more distributed care? Might it be the little pop-up shops that are all over the place? And then the hospital building becomes high-end apartments. It, well, yeah. <laughs> it, I, I mean, that might be it. it I guess the, the question will be, what will happen to all the Walmarts that we have now if they don't get into the online business to compete with Amazon as much? I think we're going to have that same type of struggle. I want to take one step back and talk about contracts in general and what the best contracts for financial success and value-based care might be. Some organizations talk about starting with a shared savings program to get experience and starting with upside risk before you get into downside risk. What's been your experience? Most of the organizations that I've worked with because of this fee-for-service orientation have been conservative. Uh, they have wanted to start with that shared savings. The if I can do it and I get a reward from it, that's great. And, you know, I'll work slowly to transition into that. And our experience has been somewhat slow transition. Yeah, the critique of that, obviously, is if people don't have those immediate incentives or that immediate risk, they're never going to actually change. And that's accurate. And I think where we have really struggled, we've talked a little bit about upside incentives directly for physicians. I think the bigger challenge is how do you apply a downside incentive to the physician? At the end of the day, the, you know, you or me, what we get paid, we don't want to see uh, you lose 10% at the end of the year and you've got to pay it back to your employer. I think that will be very challenging. Have you started to do that? What's been the best practices so far for, again, circulating that idea? I think personally you need to stage it. I think you need to start with an upside incentive. You need to allow them the time to engage in the measures and not nitpick the measures. And I, I joke with my friends about physicians and their acceptance of data. They really do go through the Kubler-Ross um, stages of grief <laughs> or, around how they accept data. We go through the bargaining phase. They go through the anger phase. And, you know, eventually they do get to acceptance. If you start with them and a downside for that, I, I think you, you've lost because they need to grieve. Um, they, they, they need, they to, need to say goodbye to fee-for-service and, and, and grieve that process before we start to penalize them. You mentioned at the start of the conversation that there have been learnings from this process, wins and losses and, and things you've done right and things you wish you could have done differently. Let's start with the things that you found you did right. What went really well in this? So engagement, first and foremost. I think having the physicians involved up front, not doing something top down has been critically important. It's allowed them to go through some of those stages of grief. 
And they understand where the measures came from, why they're there. They understand the behaviors that they do that lead to success and the behaviors that they do that don't lead to success. And, and so the second thing is to offer support along the way. The care teams are all about that. There's support for the patients, but there's support for the physicians as well. And what would you have done differently? Could you have started over again? You know, interestingly, we have that debate. It comes down to how aggressive do we get in rolling out a measure? How much risk do we put an individual physician at versus what the organization is at? And I think we may have been a little slow, a little too patient in moving along. And I think I would make that more aggressive. So we've asked a lot of people who we've talked to to look into a crystal ball and predict healthcare 10 years from now. We talked a little already about what a hospital might look like. What's going to be the balance of risk in the future? And who's going to be driving that? Is it going to be payers? Is it going to be the government? I think it's going to be providers. I think the government clearly has indicated that they're going to push risk onto us and that, you know, again, I'm a provider-based person. I've been on the provider side for most but not all my career. I think they're asking us to be insurers as well. And so I would suspect in 10 years most insurers will be provider-based or will be some type of um consolidation of the two together. And the insurers will be doing the claim payment work, doing the member processing work, et cetera. But that tie-in with the providers who are providing care will be tighter. And I think it's the risk and the engagement of providers in cost and feeling much more confident in making a decision about how much care is going to cost is going to be the end-all, be-all. And is that a happy future for you? Is that good news? Yeah, I think so. Because <laughs> ultimately, I think it, the reason we have doctors and the doctors want to provide good care to their patients and we want to get the rest of the stuff out of the way, I, I think that will be good because I think they'll be enabled to do that. I think we're really seeing a change in the way healthcare is going to look in the future. All of a sudden you have providers and hospitals and even insurers and patients who are sitting around the table and talking about what care ought to look like. And what's interesting is, although he's coming at it from a, a finance guy's perspective, a kind of bureaucratic perspective, many of the things he's talking about are pretty radical. The way he talks about rethinking a hospital building and what it's used for, that's a big deal. But that's what happens when you start to get into value-based care. And once you turn the payment model on its head, all of a sudden the conversations change. You gain alignment, but you get conversations about, well, should we be doing more prevention? And should we be absolutely sure that the only people that make it into the hospital are the ones who really need it. What value-based care seems to do, as Kevin Hoppy talked about, is bring all those players together. Instead of being in their separate departments, trying to avoid each other at all costs, they have to sit down at the table together and hash this out and come up with these new ideas. There's incentive to knock down the silos. We talk about silos all the time in technology and how we want to have interoperability. But the truth was, there was a lot of siloed groups, the doctors from the hospital, from the patient, from the payer, and now all of a sudden we're knocking down those walls and there's a new need to have technology bridge that all together. And then the patients are players here too, like you said. I think the moment 
they feel empowered, and high deductible insurance will get you pretty involved quickly. The moment there's transparency and they have the opportunity to see what quality looks like, I think patients are going to make better decisions, and that puts them in the center where they should be. So Kevin Hoppe gave us his glimpse of the future. We've been asking so many people to look into the crystal ball. I wanted to ask you, Kevin Van, what you think the future of healthcare is going to look like 10 years from now. Well, I'm a believer as well in value-based care. I think that these conversations are redefining the way we think about care, and it's really sparking a lot of innovation. Having said that, we haven't gotten the payment piece right yet. I, I agree with Paul Levy on that one. And so you kind of have started in the right direction. It feels like a lily pad towards a different area that we have to jump across. We're not there yet. It's going to be a process. We said this up front. It's a journey. But we really need to think about, you know, how can we work on the payment model in such a way that we're going to encourage this and develop a payment model that'll work for everyone. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our producer is Nikki Zace. Our engineer and composer and jack of all trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health. I'm at Kevin Van MD. And I'm at Joanna Weiss. And for more stories about healthcare in America today, go to athenainsight.com. Mm-hmm.